0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton.
1: Hello, my name is Stephanie Creary, and I'm an assistant professor of management at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. And I'm so delighted to welcome you to today's episode of the Knowledge at Wharton Leading Diversity at Work podcast series, which is focused on navigating social class in the workplace. Joining me today are two very special guests. First, we have Dr. Sean Martin, who is Don and Lauren Morrell, associate professor at Darden School of Business, University of Virginia, in the field of organizational behavior. His research addresses topics related to leadership, ethics, and social class in the workplace, including the topic of social class transitioners, which we'll be discussing today. Next, we have Thalia Smith, who is an audit and assurance partner at Deloitte. She is currently driving the Made initiative at Deloitte, which stands for Making Accounting Diverse and Equitable. And she's focused on, in this initiative, increasing racial and ethnic diversity in the accounting and tax profession. So welcome, Sean and Thalia. I am so honored to have you here with the opportunity to engage in conversation about navigating social class in the workplace. To get us started, I'd like to begin with you, Sean, and specifically your recent work on social class transitioners. I think it probably will be helpful first to define social class for our audience, and then certainly this concept that you've been working with, which is a social class transitioner. So can you help us to understand a little bit more about social class as you think about it, and certainly who social class transitioners are?
2: Yeah, for sure. So first of all, thanks for having me here. It's a delight to see you again and delight to be here to to speak with this audience. Um, Social class is essentially our uh, access to resources and comparative to other people. Like what resources do we have access to compared to the other folks around us? Uh, And the way that we think about resources when we operationalize this idea is usually thinking about it in terms of income, like do you have access to financial resources that you can use to buy things, Uh, education, which is do you have access to cultural resources, you have broad cultural knowledge that could help you act like you know what you're talking about, fit in, it gives you some bona fides in certain situations, and also occupational prestige. Uh, which is essentially gives you the ability to walk into a room and you say what you do and people think wow that person has status in this group right so these different types of resources uh, comprise what we consider to be social class along with uh subjective perceptions of your social class like where i think i rank compared to other people So that's kind of an idea of just what it is and how we think about it in terms of social class transitioners uh, the, what I've been working on with some of my colleagues is exploring uh, people who move from one social class position to another over the course of their lives and over the course of their careers. Did you start off in a lower social class position with very little education or very little income or little prestige and move to a position where you have more of those things or vice versa? Did you start off with your parents making a good living and, and working prestigious jobs and some for some reason or another, you've moved down to a different social class? And we look at that and think about what effect does that have on a person in terms of the way that they develop, grow, uh, act with other people, and, and how does that make other people perceive them socially? So what are the social ramifications for that? So that's the social class transitioner piece.
1: And And so interestingly enough, you know, Sean, Sean and I have known each other for some time, I believe it was when I was finishing my PhD program, Sean was incoming as an assistant professor at my university. And so I think one of the things that, you know, as I've come to know Sean personally, and then I've seen you quoted as saying uh, this in in other um, periodicals is is you've talked about your personal experience as a social class transitioner. And, And certainly it seems as if that has informed not only your interests, but your ways of thinking about this topic. So can you, for our audience, elaborate this connection a little bit more between your personal experiences as a social class transitioner in the types of concepts and contexts that you're thinking about in your work.
2: Yeah, sure. I mean, so to start off, I always, you know, throw out the disclaimer. Um, You know, I, I didn't come from, you know, poverty at all. Like I came from, you know, a very standard lower middle class family. Uh, with a father who was, you know, the the sole wage earner when I was born for for our family and and living a a pretty standard lower middle class lifestyle. My mom and dad were both had college educations, but my mom was a stay at home mom at the time. Um, And I actually got to go along with my family on a on an an upward class transition. So my parents separated, my mom remarried, my both my parents went and got higher education. I, I remember watching my mom as a single mom with two boys uh, putting herself through grad school to try to improve her spot in society, right? And the things that she had access to, those resources. And, you know, she since remarried, and, um, you know, her husband started uh, a business. That became very successful. And so my brother and I got to go along on this fairly dramatic upward social class trajectory. Um, And then of course, when I left and went to school, I kind of followed a similar path where I thankfully had a a family that was well-established. So I had a lot of opportunities, but, you know, started off in, in making very little and being able to reach a position where I'm at now. And just in seeing those dynamics in a, in a, honestly, a fairly I would say privileged range, right? I was never food insecure or anything of that nature. Like being able to see, even with that, you know, within that range, I found myself in a lot of situations on an upward path where I didn't know how to behave. You know, where I'd find myself at a, a fine dining institution or attending an educational uh, information session for a prestigious university and realizing that I was very clearly the odd man out. Yeah. Uh, I didn't have the cultural knowledge of what to do and what to be, but I learned it. And part of this was I went and did my PhD, my first time going to, you know, a private school. Uh, I found myself kind of outmatched, I think, in terms of how to navigate that environment. And so I, in learning to navigate that environment, I felt like I picked up a lot of lessons. Um, and I felt like even though I, even though I didn't know how to behave in those situations, I believed in myself and my ability to to do it, to do the work. Um, And so that level of high levels of efficacy that I brought to it, combined with this kind of learning orientation, I think shaped me in some ways that made me predisposed to not only care about social class because of that, you know, my own limited experiences with it, but also to be able to understand what kinds of lessons are learned from people who have been socially mobile and what could they bring to the workplace? Because unfortunately, one of the things that we continually see is people who come from You know, lower middle to lower social class backgrounds is that they're often selected out at the work in the workplace, they often uh, don't make it into prestigious organizations for reasons that have very little to do with performance. They have to do with these cultural associations we have with social class around, you know, who's qualified to, quote, unquote, be here. You know, my own limited experience of this when I was applying to grad schools mm-hmm. uh, to go do my Ph.D. was I had a, a phone call with a professor at a, at a very prestigious university. And this person told me in looking at my resume, which I emailed to them, they said, I actually think you probably shouldn't list where you did your master's degree. And I think you should because we're going to look down on that here. Basically, I'll be held against wow. you here. Right. And thinking that this opportunity of me going, getting higher education would it open more doors for me. I'm learning it did to a point. But at this place, it shuts doors off. Right. So, you know, you're starting to understand, like, how do people get formed by this experience? And what are the factors that enable them to keep moving up versus constrain them? Right. And so that that, that is a really tight uh, and difficult uh, place for people. Like you're trying to do all the things that you can do to move up, fit in, learn all these great cultural lessons but you end up finding there are a lot of obstacles and a lot of frictions at various points in that process. So anyways, all of that was fascinated me. And that's kind of why I turned to the subject and now I'm talking too much. So I'm going to (laughs) shoot.
1: Super interesting. I actually had this flashback when you talked about, you talked about fine dining and and not knowing how to behave. I, I flashback to my junior year of college where I was in a student leadership position and we were orientation leaders for the summer. And as part of our uh, you know onboarding into the role we had to attend these workshops where uh, we where the you know formal uh, settings were set out in terms of like forks and spoons and cups and they were teaching us at the time I was probably 20 which forks and knives and which spoon and how to like navigate the play setting and it was clear to me then that so many of us just hadn't been introduced uh, to that type of fine or formal dining. And it was because they said to us, you know, you're going to be interacting with students' parents. Um, and there are students' parents for whom that is a natural thing that one should know. So if you're trying to engage with them, knowing how to navigate your play setting is really important. And I'm I'm so grateful for that to this date. But uh, you know, as I think about your your work and I think about your story, uh, that is something that I think that perhaps some people might take for granted. Um, that was certainly really important to me as a social class transitioner. Uh, Thalia, I'd like to move to you. Welcome. Thank you so much for being here. In just a moment, I would love to hear more about the work that you're doing at Deloitte. But first, I'm interested in learning more about your experiences with social class. I came across a wonderful interview you did where you were talking about uh, sort of the motivation for this, uh, this work at Deloitte, but you had painted a very vivid picture of what your experiences were like growing up. So we'd love to hear more from you about your own personal experiences. And certainly if you feel like that has informed the
0: work that you're doing at Deloitte, we would love to know that as well. Awesome. Thank you so much, Stephanie, for having me. I'm super excited to be here and to hear more about Sean's work. Um, Gosh, I I tell the story all the time and I spend a lot of time talking to high school students about the fact that I too came from a, a low middle income family. Uh, My mom was an elementary school teacher. My dad worked for the sanitation and health department and they retired in those jobs and they're still married to this day. Um, But I had the luxury of, of going on to college, even though they did not complete college. And I can tell you, my three siblings also chose not to go to college. Um, and I remember coming home from university and and getting, um, you know, that initial offer to come into Deloitte. And when I looked at, the, at my starting salary, it was actually higher than the starting salary of both my parents. Wow. And that for me was an eye opener. Right. I mean, prior to that, I had no idea what the starting salary was, to be honest. And I suddenly was like, oh, my God, going to college makes a difference, And so I've been with Deloitte approximately 20 years now, and particularly in the last year, I have had the opportunity to um, lead our commitment that is focused on making accounting diverse and equitable. Um, and that's in large part due to the fact that there is a, a large disparity when you look at the number of Black and Hispanic or Latinx youth that are opting into the profession. I know for me personally, I got lucky. To, to make it into this profession. And, and what do I mean by that? Um, I was lucky to have an older sister that took an accounting class in 10th grade and I, I'm six years behind her. And I, and I saw her with this, this notebook and I'm like, hey, what are you doing? There, there's math involved. There, there are numbers involved. I love math and numbers. What are you doing? And she said, um, this is accounting. And I'm like, that's what I wanna be. I wanna be an accountant. I had no idea what that meant when I made that decision um, you know, at, in my youth. I went on to college to study it, and still even through college, had no idea the extent of what the accounting profession could do for me. and when I got the offer to, to work at Deloitte, it was after my sophomore year, I, I took an internship and that was really my first exposure to a lot of things. right? And so when you talk about fine dining, I have that flashback as well mm-hmm. with regards to not just trying to figure out which fork to use, but quite frankly, what to order off the menu when the only thing I was used to was chicken and fish. <laughs> yes. and suddenly there's like all of these other things that are on there. Right. And, and it took me a while to be comfortable with, you know, ordering beyond the norms that I was used to, um, you know, fast forward, obviously um, 13 years into my career, I'm fortunate enough to have the sponsorship and mentorship of so many people um, internal to Deloitte and external to Deloitte, which led to me becoming a partner and, and clearly, it goes without saying that, um, you know, the salary that comes with that is multiple times um, what my parents made as a, as a teacher or, you know, working for the health department. And so um, I never really thought of myself as a social class transition, or at least I hadn't termed it that way. Um, but clearly, there has been a change in my lifestyle. And again, I was lucky to experience that change. The focus of MADE for me is to change that luck factor and to reduce that luck factor for others. Let's get the message out that this is a profession that can actually change lifestyles and then hopefully communities and economies. So I think it's a wonderful initiative and and I would love for you to share a a bit
1: more about it with respect to, I think you've already mentioned who you're targeting as individuals from underrepresented racial minority groups. You specifically mentioned black and, and Latino, Latinx, uh, people, I think certainly, uh, you want to get them into the profession of, of accounting, which we know many of us know, and I think certainly we have a population of students at uh, the Wharton School who are interested in you know, accounting or you know its cousin, financial services, but the it lacks racial diversity, and I I you know would be curious to um, understand the relationship between that and social class. You know, so much when we talk about social class. We still do see, I think, a, a high bit of correlation. Sean, maybe you can sort of address that later. But Dalia, can you just tell us a little bit more about the
0: MAID initiative? What are some of the major uh, features? How does it work? So back in June, we uh, announced Made, which, as you mentioned earlier, stands for Making Accounting Diverse and Equitable. It's our commitment. I use the word commitment because I think initiatives can be stopped. And this is not an initiative. This is our commitment to generate more career opportunities and leadership pathways. So it's not just getting people in, it's also moving people up into leadership um, for our black and Hispanic and Latinx individuals. Um, We believe that we can create that next generation of accountants that are diverse um, and that demonstrates equity and parity within the, the accounting profession. I mentioned briefly the statistics, if you look at them, um, the CPA is one of the highest certifications. The Certified Public Accountant Certification is one of the highest that you can receive. Less than 1% of CPAs are Black. Um, approximately 3% are Hispanic Latinx. So think about that. Less than 5% of CPAs are Black or Hispanic, Latinx in a country where the demographics are somewhere in the range of 30 to 40%. Clearly, there is disparity. And so um, that significant gap needs to be addressed. And it's going to take more than a few initiatives to do that. We recognize that there are a low number of college graduates that are choosing to become CPAs, and, and that gap continues to widen. And it's in large part because of, quite frankly, I think the lack of messaging with regards to the opportunities, the social class opportunities that can be had with regards to the accounting profession. Right? You know, normally you hear about you know going on to be a doctor, that's lucrative. Being a lawyer, that's lucrative. Going on and doing sports or being an entertainer, that's lucrative. Um, but not enough with regards to the message of, of accounting and tax. And so we're really excited at Deloitte about the significant investment we're making focused on, on really addressing the biggest barriers um, to having diverse accountants. And so if I can hit off really quickly a few of them, because I can probably yeah. talk about this for hours, similar to you, Sean, um, scholarships. Um, we have committed thirty million dollars in scholarships over the next five to six years um, for fifth-year master's programs, which are needed in order to, to sometimes become CPA eligible. Um, we think that we can give somewhere in the range of eight hundred scholarships over that time frame. That's a meaningful number. Uh, a CPA CPA readiness programming is a part of our commitment. High school workshops focused on getting the message out about this profession and and allowing a Black and Hispanic and Latinx youth to see people who look like them who have been successful in the space. That, too, is important. Um, We have committed to supporting HBCUs and um, HSIs, Hispanic Serving Institutions, supporting the faculty um, at those schools, again, to, to drive change. And then we also have leadership development programs in the works, focused on mid-career professionals. Again, I'm working to get them further into the leadership ranks of their organizations. And this is just a taste of the things that we have identified under our initiative. Um, if it isn't clear, I am personally excited to lead yes. and drive this change because I know um, I, I know what these things did for my career. Right? I had a scholarship, full ride to go to university that made a difference for for me coming from a low middle income family. Um, I know what it was to, to see my sister take accounting um, and how that changed my perspective on a future, a future that I quite honestly hadn't envisioned before that point. And so if we, if we move a little further though, to why is this important for the broader corporate America? We know that teams made up of diverse and inclusive professionals are more powerful right? Um, And accountants are in the position to impact important business decisions. I know I do on a regular basis. And that I can drive and they can drive real positive outcomes um, across organizations, across economies, across society as a whole. And so um, to say the least, we want to create opportunities. We want to drive the next generation of business leaders. And we want diverse voices at the table with regards to the important business conversations.
1: Good stuff. Good stuff, Thalia. Uh, Sean, when you consider what Thalia has shared about the MAID initiative and certainly the motivation and the scholarships and all the opportunities that they're trying to create, um, when you think about your own research and, and potentially this question that I started to bring up earlier, you know, the intersections of social class with other dimensions of difference, how do you think about that or your future research questions, or maybe some of the current questions that you're considering with respect to social class transitioners.
2: Valley provided an incredible amount of, of information. That's a, a whole all of those initiatives sound really fantastic. And I think that, um, you know, it's just like kind of food for thought tying this to the research part. There is a decent amount of research, some of the most, uh, you know, high quality that I've seen by Lauren Rivera um, showing that like, you know, a lot of the folks that these initiatives are targeted towards are kept out of elite organizations like Deloitte um, and others, right? Because of these social class signals and what some of those social class signals might be are things like, you know, where did you do your undergrad? Um, You know, what kinds of activities did you do? Did you participate in rugby and polo and lacrosse or whatever higher social elite status types of activities would be? Or were you, you know, did you play basketball? And did you, what kind of music do you listen to? And do you volunteer for certain types of organizations that indicate your prestige and people rely on those types of things? So I think having systems that can help try to override some decision-maker's bias to value certain types of activities or certain types of things that we would see as class indicators on a resume are incredibly useful and incredibly helpful. Um, And the next step that I think is really important to think about is what happens once people are in, because getting people into these organizations is incredibly important, but then do they Do they enjoy it? Do they have a good experience within these organizations once they're there, right, socially and in terms of opportunities is a key part of this. So, you know, I I was thinking about, you know, Thalia's uh, experiences that she shared. And I thought the the story you told, uh, Thalia, about your parents and, you know, your first salary being more than they ever made, that's actually a really common occurrence, I think, for a lot of folks who are upward class transitioners. And that's also, that creates a lot of dissonance for some people, right, as they move up. Because you have this uh, situation where, you know, we talk about fine dining and feeling like you didn't know what to do. You enter this elite organization or this elite context and you're like, I don't totally feel like I fit in here. Mm -hmm. I, I recognize that I am somehow different, but I'm also making the kind of money now and have some occupational prestige and I can go do these other activities that I also feel like I might not fit in the same way that I used to with my family or with my other friends or the social connections that I had when I was younger. And so it puts these folks, when they do get entry into these elite organizations, these are what things we call the gateway organizations, right? The organizations mm-hmm. allow you to move up upward uh, uh, into a higher status where people feel sort of socially isolated, where they no, don't necessarily feel like they fit in where they are and they don't necessarily feel like they fit in where they're from. Right, and so the ways that we can try to uh, address that first and foremost would be getting more people like that through the door to create community there, right? Mm-hmm. And it can be, by the way, you can, you can really burn out if you're the t- only person who is a class transitioner in an elite group because you're f- constantly having to do work that isn't actually part of your job description, where you're helping people understand how someone else might be thinking and feeling. Do our decisions work for these people? I understand why this person says things the way they do. It means this. I, I get both sides, right? You have to constantly be doing this navigating and, you know, uh, code switching to some extent between mm-hmm. these groups, and that's tiring, right? So getting more people who can share that work is incredibly beneficial and helpful. As a matter of fact, Andrea Dittman, great researcher down at Emory, has a wonderful paper about this with first-generation college students, that when they all get to work together in a group, they actually can outcompete almost all these other groups. Right. Because they actually they now all of a sudden you have community, the social parts, the social challenges aren't weighing us down as much. My skills are able to thrive. Right. So that uh, the Talia story definitely reminded me of that. The other word that I would be remiss if I didn't uh, bring up that that you said twice is luck. And that, I think, is such an interesting word because I feel that way, too. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like we underestimate the role of luck in a lot of our success and in a lot of our failures, basically just our life outcomes. Um, and you know, I was I was a part of a study with Stefan Kotek, the University of Toronto, a great researcher in this. That ended up showing people who've been uh, in stable high social class positions for their whole lives—that is, they were born to privilege and they've remained in privilege—tend to also be the people who report the highest levels of entitlement. Mm-hmm. Right? The highest level is the, yeah, I deserve more. Yeah, I earned all this. This all belongs to me. And the people who've had experience with either downward transitions or have been on an upward transition, experienced lower positions earlier in life, but people who've never experienced privileged positions all tend to espouse much lower levels of entitlement. You know, because I think you realize and get a, gain a humility for the role that luck plays. And I think that's just one of the many attributes that lower the social class background folks, folks who've been upwardly mobile, bring to the workplace is a sense of less entitlement you know, a good fortune for being where they are. Um, Some of my own research suggests lower levels of narcissism,
0: Mm -hmm. you know, in
2: leadership Mm -hmm. positions. Um, And and certainly I would also also argue just grit. I mean, if organizations, practically speaking, are looking for evidence of grit on a resume, you can see that with people who've been upwardly mobile, you know, much, I I believe more so than folks who've always had, you know, a high social class position, Mm -hmm. right? If you've actually had to work, uh, from a lower station in life to achieve where you are, give me that person in an application interview situation every day. Give me the person that came farther to get there because what I'm looking for is resilience and grit and ability to see it through really difficult things. That person's shown it. You can see that on sometimes on a resume.
1: So Sean, this is super fascinating. Uh, you know, all sorts of things are swimming around in my head. I too was drawn by the use of the phrase luck. Um, <laughs> I was thinking also, you'd mentioned Lauren Rivera's work, but I was also thinking about uh, Professor Seamus Kahn's work where he has this book that is the making of uh, an, the an adolescent elite at St. Paul's School and the I book is that. actually called Privilege and it's a fabulous book and it talks about how many of the students who've gone to this school which is a real place and I've when I've talked about this book in class I've had many fret many students who have gone to this school and then and they've talked about the fact that the that the um but the narrative around hard work and effort and my own individual capabilities as having uh, been the explanation for my performance is really a strong narrative um, among the haves, those who have resources and how the narrative of sort of like luck, right? Is is much more of of something that's perpetuated by people who have uh, transition or who've been in a different set of situations having fewer resources and have been able to observe what the world looks like for those who do. So I I think this is a a fascinating concept. I think the other thing that came up for me is as we were talking about, and Sean, you mentioned this, but I think it connects to something that Valia said, which was uh, keeping people and people who work in your organization. And as you know, you both know, there's so much energy in organizations today around, how do we get people in the door, specifically people who have different types of backgrounds. Uh, so there's a lot of work on recruiting, not so much work being done and executed well on retention, as we know from the catchphrase of the day, the great resignation. I started thinking about leaders and I started thinking about people who have, like Thalia, like yourself, who have climbed um, positions in your organizations and certainly have transition in social class types of ways and and I'm reminded of an interview I did earlier this summer with a, a black board director of, of, of who's on several Fortune 500 company boards. And they talked about the moment that they realized how much work was getting done at the country club and they didn't have a country club membership. And I was so fascinated by this. This is somebody who is very well known very successful, you know, from the standpoint of, you know, how we think about career and, and career-related success and financial success. Um, but it wasn't until they'd gotten to this sort of really elite, elite role as a, as a board director that they started to understand things like having a boat and having a country club membership and how those resources became vehicles for communication, camaraderie, but also opportunity. At uh, So I think about these topics with respect to future research uh, and what's super exciting about the possibilities of continuing to conduct research on this topic. Sean, I wanted to turn it over to you for a minute to um, give us some insight on where you think we still need to go conducting research, but also understanding the experiences that we have based on social class, And then, Thali, when I turn it over to you, I'm interested in understanding more about the day-to-day experience of working with people from different social classes. So, Sean, you first.
2: Sure. So, I mean, one of the things I think is is fairly well understood. There's always going to be people who disagree with everything, right? There's going to be a percentage of people who disagree with any statement that you make. But I think the majority opinion is that social class mobility is a good thing, Mm -hmm. right? And that we should all be part of being the kind of nation, society, culture that enables upward social class mobility. And it's good. And yet we see in a lot of situations, it's not actually being promoted. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to start understanding more about why. And so one of the reasons that we've identified why is these associations of like status and value that we attribute to these things that we've just decided are elite. We've just decided certain activities indicate that you're elite. Other ones do not. Right. And they tend to be the ones that are associated with high wage earners. And that somehow we see that meaning quality, cultural fit, greater levels of intelligence, greater levels of ability. That's one. The other thing, though, that I think we might want to start thinking about is how our jobs imbue expectations of what we should do. Mm -hmm. Um, So some research I've been working on recently has shown, like, if you ask the vast majority of people, who's going to be a harder worker, who's going to be a better performer, who's going to be a more committed employee, who's going to be a lot of these organizationally desirable attributes. And you show people just these lines of someone who's been on an upward trajectory that goes upward, or someone who's been on a pretty stable one that's always been high. Most people pick the the line that's pointing upward. The person who's been on that kind of a trajectory is going to show more of those values. So something about us implicitly understands that. But then when you do the exact same thing and ask them to make a choice of who would you hire, we see that they hire the stable high. And a part of me has been really wondering how much of that is perceptions that this is what our boss would want us to do. I have these uh, requirements for performance where I feel like I have to pick, I have to reduce whatever any perceived risk could be. So I'm going. If, if I see potential for risk in someone who does different activities than other people here, or a person who went to a school that isn't one of the normal schools that we hire from, I'm going to use that as an opportunity for me to cut risk. Even though I believe this person could be great, I'm beholden to other people and other expectations. And so I have to do this. And so I really think we need to start understanding what kinds of systems do we have in place that reinforce for people the felt need to continue making these sorts of choices. Um, you know, and and I also would would caution people to think, you know, systems are super important, but interpersonal treatment matters a lot too. So in the sense that all of us, if you're in a leadership position or you will eventually, if you're a student now and will eventually be in a leadership position, you have a direct role in whether or not people from lower social class backgrounds have opportunity. So a paper that I have under review right now with a great uh, friend of mine, Spencer Harrison, is uh, looking at exactly this, right? And finding that people who come from lower class backgrounds and go to work for these elite organizations actually espouse incredibly high levels of efficacy. That is, they say, I know I can do this job. Mm -hmm. I believe in myself, right? Because I've shown it. I've moved from low to high. I've shown that I can do things, right? Mm -hmm. I know my capabilities. But despite the fact they believe in themselves and the fact that they do the things they need to be doing, bosses are less likely to ask for their input on a daily basis. Their supervisors are less likely to come up to them and go, hey, what do you think about this? Can you give me your input on this? Right. And we ended up showing this again in both field study, a couple of experiments. Mm-hmm. Right. So and, it's, and and the interesting thing about the data we have is it also shows the tendency to discriminate against people from lower social class backgrounds in terms of seeking people's input, seeking mm-hmm. people's information is held more strongly among those people who are in higher class positions. Yeah. As people who are in lower class positions don't show the same discrimination. Right? Yeah. They're happy to ask in a more broad, fair way. Right, So, I do think for those people who are in privileged positions where they have influence, they have power, how can we start convincing them to change their behavior, not just the system yeah. level, but the individual leader level, right? To make sure there's equitable opportunity for the people working for them to have a voice in these situations?
1: So this is super fascinating. And as a potential like mechanism or an explanation for why the boss who has more privilege might not Um, elicit, you know, uh, recommendations uh, from the person from a lower social class, I started to think about Carol Dweck, uh, Stanford's uh, social psychologist's work on growth mindset and potential. And, and, you know, Thalia, you could probably attest to this. There's so much work being done in organizations to try to get recruiters and try to get managers to adopt a growth mindset to see people's potential. But what they often tend to see is is fixed uh, set of uh, markers, such as you went to that school, we only slept from this school. You had that job, this is the one that we believe is the one that's gonna predict performance, but really a lot of what this research says is it's, it's really about assessing people's comfort and risk tolerance, more so than those as actually being predictors. Um, any other mechanisms that you came across, Sean, in that work as you think about why explaining, other than obviously people are just biased, but are there any other mechanisms that you were thinking about that might explain that relational um dynamic between managers and direct reports.
2: Yeah. Well, so I mean the one that we've least identified actually echoes Lauren Rivera's work. A lot of it seems to be due to cultural fit. Yeah. When I'm asking who do I want to hear from, I'm going to be making that decision. Like when I'm seeking information, I'm going to try to seek it from information from people who I perceive as high having the highest value information. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I'm going to look at do I feel comfortable with you? Because if I don't, if this interaction makes me uncomfortable because you feel different than me, there's a cost to that. Right. That as opposed to seeking information from someone I feel comfortable with. But there's also, do I feel like you are just you just get this place? You you understand the inner workings of it, you fit in well with my clients, you fit in well with all these kinds of things. Then you're gonna have I I perceive you as having higher quality information. So I'm gonna seek it out from you. So cultural fit seems to determine uh an unfortunate amount of it. <laughs> so
1: all right Thalia so we're talking about you know the, the types of positions that you hold as a as a leader as, as someone who um works with teams of people and people of different social class backgrounds and certainly we as academics can go on and on around what we think is actually happening, but would love to hear from you as, as you're thinking about the teams of people you work with and perhaps some of these relational dynamics between managers and direct reports or between peers and peers, what are you observing? And, and in observing these dynamics, what do you think we still need to do? I think as leaders, um, in order to create these more inclusive workplace experiences where we can achieve some of these positive outcomes that are definitely assumed um, likely if we can make the most of the talent that we have.
0: Yeah, Stephanie, if if I could start with an image that I tend to live my life by, I I once heard um, a story with regards to a ball rolls into a round ball, rolls into a room, and the room is full of squares. Mm -hmm. And after a point, the ball turns into a square. And then shortly after that, another ball rolls in and looks around and says, wait a minute, again, there's no one like me. And so for me personally, I've, I've lived my life on there. It's important for me to continue to be um, an individual that's true to myself, um, that's comfortable with myself so that others around me, when they roll into that room, they see that there is diversity in their room and that empowers them to be their truest self on the job. Right. And so um, I think that is what is needed. Um, Not tolerance, but acceptance of of who each person is and and bringing that to the table. And so when I think about everything that that Sean has said with regards to, um, you know, stereotypes with respect to universities or backgrounds, et cetera, I will say that. I can't speak to every organization that's out there. I can only speak to Deloitte specifically and um, particularly over the last year, just given our our recommitment to um, increasing our diversity, our equity and inclusion, we did actually take a step back. And one of the things that we looked at was, where are the universities that we're recruiting at, right? Like we say we want a diverse population, but are the universities that we're going to yielding a diverse population, and so we actually increased significantly the pipeline of universities that we've recruited at over the last year. we doubled down on our recruiting at HBCUs and HSIs, Um, and we didn't do that in a vacuum just at the top of the organization. We ensured that all of our line partners, as well as our, our managers and senior managers that are in our leadership teams, understood the importance of why we needed this change. If we all were saying that we um, believed in diversity, equity and inclusion, we needed to live that from start to finish. And so the start of that, the start being in our recruiting, how we recruited, where we went to recoup- recruit, the way we looked at candidates when they walked in the door, right? I know a lot of times you might look at a resume and say, oh, hey, you know, this person had a previous internship at X organization, Um, that's great. We had to actually look beyond that with regards to, while this particular student is in school, they're putting in 25 hours working at the local Home Depot or the Walmart, right? Like that. That is a skill set that we want. Someone who can juggle um, more than one task at a time because we are, we are very much um, an organization that needs professionals who can be organized across competing priorities. And so that's just an example. Obviously having great communication skills, um, being able to deal with conflict. Those were the skill sets we started focusing on coming out of varying experiences. Teamwork, if someone plays on a, on a sports team, we know that student athletes are busy Right. And so if you can you can look at a resume and see, hey, this person is a student athlete who has an appreciation for teamwork, which essentially is what we do each and every day. Those were the types of things we started to refocus on um, as part of our recruiting aspect. Now, as you move from recruiting into this person has come into the firm and they're working on teams. As a bit of background, I serve um, teams and lead teams of varying sizes, right? I have a team that has 300 people, and um, it's been my, my pleasure to, to, to stand at the helm of that size team. And then I have smaller teams that are in the range of, of 10 to 20 people. And again, as I, st- I started this, um, first and foremost, it's understanding where each person is coming from in, in, in the current state of their lives and then giving them the opportunity to bring their best selves whatever that is, um, to the table. Um, from there, it's really just creating opportunities for us to, to have an inclusive environment. And so it's not just about the work. I mean, we spend a lot of time, um, you know, doing social activities that allow various, varying um, experiences to come to the forefront, right? So I will tell you, I don't go. When, was it Sean or maybe Stephanie, when you mentioned, you know, the country club or, you know, the boat, I don't have a boat. Um, I, I don't have those experiences. So I understand what it means for others to not have those experiences, but I love bowling. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big bowler. Right? Um, I, I know others who, who um, you know, love to skate or love to go for a run or quite frankly, just love to go out and have a meal. And so um, I, I do think that you know, My experience being different has allowed me to recognize and, and appreciate the differences in others and really try to um, create events and experiences both on the job and off the job that appeal to that group. And, and I do think that is true of many other uh, partners uh, within my firm.
1: Absolutely. Uh, So I do have one final question for uh, the two of you. Uh, Something you said, Thalia, I started thinking about the hustle. And um, I started thinking about, you know, some might call it struggle, you might call it the hustle. And you gave me a flashback to the time when I was in college. I can't tell you how many, I was always working, picking up this kind of job or that kind of job before we started calling it gig work, just to be able to, you know, sustain myself when I was in school. I think it has helped me become a better professor because this job has so many different pieces to it that you're constantly having to juggle. Um and I think for some people who haven't had to juggle multiple things before they get into this profession, this is it's very hard, right? Um and not saying that it's easy, but I think it's, I'm used to it, right? I'm used to being able to switch my attention between multiple things and keep multiple balls in the air. And certainly over the years, as I've interviewed people uh, who are motivated to achieve at work, a lot of that is about their desire to provide for their children and for loved ones. And and certainly I've heard lots of stories like ours where people have talked about the struggle or the hustle. Um, But also not wanting their children or their loved ones to have to hustle or struggle as much as they had. And so, you know, despite, I think, our feelings about this, I personally felt like I've gained a lot from it. Um, I'm wondering, as you think back and reflect on your own career path to date um, and those people who you are helping, whether it's people you work with or people at home, and what tips do you have for them based on your experiences and Sean, your research, um, in thinking about social class transitioning. Thalia, I'll start with you.
0: So Stephanie, when I when I think about your question, a number of things come to mind. Um, we talked earlier about hard work and I absolutely think that is a, a large part of it. And, and quite frankly, a lot of us are, are no stranger to hard work. Um, but two other things come to mind for me are one that you have to be in it for the long game, not just the short game, right? A lot of times we expect the quick fix And we think that, hey, you know, if if we can't have it now, we're never going to have it or it's not worth working towards. I am very much a long term thinker. And I spend a lot of time when talking to my mentees saying, hey, when you're about to make a decision, don't just think about the now, Think about the long-term implications of this decision. And and that's really, when I come back back to the accounting profession, Um, in the short term, it might be like, oh, it's just numbers or it's boring. But long-term, the impact that the profession has had on my lifestyle um, and indirectly on the lifestyle of my family and my friends, and I I could talk about my friends for days and all the expectations they have, um, you know, being a friend of Thalia, um, it it really does show that, um, you know, that there are opportunities within the profession. The second thing I would say is um, the importance of relationships, Hmm. right? A lot of times, again, we focus on the work, 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 work. And quite frankly, that was me when I first started out in the profession. I was heads down at my laptop doing the work. And then you have to recognize to the point that we've made about the country club or the voting, while you may not go to those things, there are still other ways and other opportunities for you to build relationships. And so for me, it was the, hey, um, you know, the office is having a happy hour or the school is having a um, a student event. I attended. more times than not, I shut it down while I was there, right? Because I recognized the importance of walking around, networking, but not just networking, building relationships with those who are around. um we we have a saying within the firm that you know one of my close partner friends says all the time, relationships are like currency. Yes. And so I would say, hard work, thinking about the long game and focusing on relationships. That would be my advice. Absolutely. Wonderful advice.
1: Sean, over to you. Tips um, for our listeners based on your research as they think about continuing to drive ahead in their own careers.
2: Yeah, you bet. Well, I'm going to first start off by building on a couple of things that, that Thalia had said. And the first one Thalia is, uh, I would love to go bowling with you at some point. So I am also, I remember somebody was joking around and said, bowling, it's the bus stop of recreation. I'm like, well, I guess I'm just a bus stop kind of guy. So I would definitely go, I'd go hang out at the bus stop and go bowling with you. So building on a little bit of what Talia had said, though, around like the relationship skills, not only do I think that is that so critical to build relationships in a situation where you might feel like you're the odd man out, um, it's critical not only because it helps fight off some of the social isolation that we talked about right at the outset of this conversation that, you, that, that is possible for people who are entering new cultural environments, but also if you're a social class transitioner, if you've been upwardly mobile, the, most of the data would suggest you're actually uniquely suited to do that. You know, a lot of the evidence suggests that people from lower social class backgrounds have what's called a more interdependent orientation. That is, they tend to care about the we more than the me. They -hmm. tend to think about things in terms of how does this affect us and not just my own career, my own progression. So there's already a will to focus on other people. There's been evidence showing they tend to be more empathically accurate, meaning they're good at reading the emotions within a room. Right, Much more so than people who've not come from lower social class backgrounds. So the odds are you have a pretty solid intuitive set of how people are thinking and about things and how they're feeling about things that you can connect to and gain influence. Right, In my leadership classes here, we talk about leadership is not power necessarily. Leadership is not having a position of authority. It's building influence with people and influence is about getting people to do things they wouldn't necessarily do otherwise and don't even necessarily have to do, but they do it for you. And you can do that from anywhere within an organization by using some relationship abilities, lower levels of narcissism is another one, right? Mm -hmm. To focus on and build those connections with people so you have high relationship capital and become a very influential person within the organization. So rather than sitting down, like in my very first, you know, interactions moving into higher social class positions, I faded into the background because I didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. I would recommend people fight that you know, which is the easy thing to do. And it's certainly the way that I took it first and try to go out and use the skills that you've been specifically shaped to have, right? To go out and build those relationships and start accruing that influence. Um, the other thing that I would, I would say, you know, Thali had mentioned identity is in this, I don't have data on this, but this is, I've done a bunch of interviewing for like different, you know, trying to understand what people look back on in their legacy and really prioritize. And one of the main things that people come up with over and over is that they didn't trade on who they are. Mm. Right. So they kept their identity. Right. When you move from one social class position to another, there are elements of yourself that get left behind. And that feels terrible. Right now, some of them, it makes sense to leave some habits behind. I know I've left habits behind, but I'm glad I did. Right. Mm -hmm. But the ones that are central to your sense of self that motivate you that keep you grounded, you should keep those no matter what. Don't feel like you have to wholesale trade out massively important elements of who you are, because I don't think that you do. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, And I would recommend that you keep those things close because it's motivating to wake up every morning, put your feet on the ground, know that today you're going to do you instead of trying to do what other people think you should be. Right. So I'd recommend that you keep those things around. I think you'd also asked earlier on about kids (laughs) and like uh, that's something that's really salient to me because i have a six year old and a four year old and they're growing up with everything. Right. And so I actually live in terror of this. How are you going to be shaped by your background? And so, like, I can't say that I'm necessarily doing this really well. But one thing that I'm really trying to do is emphasize that, look, you kids, you're the center of my world, but you're not the center of the world. (laughs) those high levels of entitlement and narcissism tend to happen because kids who are born to privileged families and born in privileged positions in society have every resource in the world channeled to them they have private instructors they have you know tutors they have everybody asking their opinion tell me what you think about that honey express yourself which doesn't happen the same in lower social class uh settings to the same degree does happen sometimes right these are all correlations not Mm -hmm. determinative but like that teaches people that what I have to say clearly is important. And clearly I matter because look at all the resources that are invested in me. And I don't have to share anything. I have a sibling, but we each get, you know, my parents buy two soccer balls instead of just one that we have to share, right? Like I'm going to go do, I'm going to learn tennis, which I can do by myself, you know, or instead of, you know, playing football, basketball, baseball. So like we're making a concerted effort to try to balance this out with that center of my world, not center of the world, emphasize groups and teams. As often as we can, we're trying to get our kids involved in situations where they have to be interdependent they have to share right um we make sure like they say hey i want this i broke something i'll just get a new one no you won't that's your one learn responsibility right, right. Yeah, if it's gone it's just gone right so like to try to develop these types of things right and also avoid funneling of resources that can so easily happen because you want the best for those little people mm-hmm. right but in the end the struggle matters the struggle is important and if mm-hmm. you take away the struggle from people you're also taking away the opportunity to grow because growth is built through struggle. Right. So that's at least ideologically the way we're trying to handle it with our kids. But overall, I I would just say like, and this is, I mean, Thalia is the best possible example of this, right? Which is like, if you have people who've come from lower social class backgrounds, they've been shaped in very specific ways that give them very unique advantages and organizationally valuable traits, skills, and abilities. The impetus is to Figure out for those of us who've been social class transitioners, how do I best maximize these? And for organizations, how do I get more of these skills and abilities into my
1: organization? I love it. This has been a super inspiring conversation. And Sean, music to my ears is when you talked about identity Um, and you talked about not having to feel like you have to lose yourself as you move Um, into different positions and places. Uh, I appreciate you both so much for joining me today. I know I've been inspired. I've been touched by your stories, but also your wisdom and your expertise. It's been absolutely fascinating engaging with you today. Uh, So thank you so much for being here with me. Um, And thank you to the listeners for joining us for this episode of the Knowledge at Wharton Leading Diversity at Work podcast series. Goodbye for now.